listening to a podcast of Elam Lutheran Church in Osakis, Minnesota. Our passion is to be an oasis of life-giving water where lost and wandering souls can find eternal refreshment. For more information and to find out more about our ministries, please visit osakiselamchurch.com. Or if you're in the area, come visit us in person. Well, our text for this morning comes from the book of 1 John, if you haven't guessed it. Uh, we're in 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 through 21. Guys, we are going to finish up 1 John today. Okay, there, all right, yeah, there you go. They said it couldn't be done. We proved them wrong. 1 John five sixteen through 21, and I'll ask you to rise this morning for the reading of God's word. First John chapter 5, beginning at verse 16, says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that it guides us, that it corrects us, that it rebukes us, but that ultimately, God, your gospel gives life. I pray that you would do so again this morning, that to our weary bones, you would impart life once again. Speak to us now. May the words of my mouth and, God, the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. There's a lot we could talk about in this final section of John's letter. It's almost like it felt to me as I was reading through this. It was like he got to the end of the letter and then he realized a whole bunch of other things that he he really wanted to say and just kind of tried to to cram it in, you know, to to a small space. We've all written letters and had conversations like that, right? Like time is of the essence, so we're going to try to get it all in here. Uh, He goes kind of all over the place. He talks about praying for fellow Christians caught in the trap of sin, rather than giving into the temptation to gloat or finger point or gossip. Uh, he talks about the distinction between the sin that leads to death and the sin that does not lead to death. That's a, an important thing that we could talk about. He mentions how the whole world is in the grip of the evil one, how Satan has a grip on the world around us and has blinded people to the truth. And he speaks of the fact that Christians do not keep on sinning. This is something he's mentioned again and again which is interesting because it's in tension with the fact that no human being is without sin. So he's kind of making the point that people, Christians in particular, who make a a habit, a hard-hearted habit of persisting in unrepentant sin should not be treated as believers. Now, all of this is true, all of this is important, but today I want to double-click on one little thing, just the, the last verse of this. Verse 21, little children... And when 
John uses this, this, this phrase, little children. He doesn't use it in a demeaning way. It's like a, a spiritual grandfather who, who just loves his kids. So little children, like you people whom I have, 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 have raised and grown and loved, keep yourselves from idols. Now, when someone writes you a letter in 1 John, like much of the New Testament is a letter that was intended to be read to a number of different congregations spread throughout that time and in that period. When someone writes a letter, the very last thing that they say is, is kind of important, right? Like you're, you're paying attention, but then when they get to the very last thing that they say, that's what's left ringing in your head. So today we're talking about idols. In case you don't know a little bit about my background, the very first church that I served, uh, that's not true. first church I served was a small country church over near Fergus Falls, but the second church, first solo gig, uh, was out on the East Coast in uh, Princeton, New Jersey. And for a farm boy who grew up in the Midwest in a town of 560 people, I cannot tell you how much of a shock the East Coast was. It was just insane, like, where did all these people come from? And they're all so loud and so angry and driving so aggressively. And they had this weird habit of telling you exactly what they think right to your face. How bizarre is that? None of this, you know, Minnesota nice stuff. It did not fly out there. But I remember the first time I went to this church to candidate. That's what they call it when you audition to be a pastor. Uh, I went to this, this church to candidate, and this group of young adults wanted to take us out and show us the Princeton area. I thought, cool, sounds like fun. So we took a, a right out of the church on Bunker Hill Road, went down to Route 27, turned right on Route 27, went down a couple of miles, and all of a sudden they started to get really excited. And they said, oh, we have to show you the, the giant Buddha. I thought, am I candidating at the right denomination, much less the right religion? Um, but it made sense. They, we drove a couple of miles down the road. You look out the window, and sure enough, there's a giant statue of, of Buddha out there, like 20 feet tall or so. I'm not joking. Like, there's, there's this massive thing. And there was a, a meditation center that was being built there. Where there were flags decorated all around. Uh, there were gentlemen in robes kind of walking the premises. This is an actual picture of it. And then as we we saw this meditation center, we kept driving, and then on the left, there was a massive Hindu shrine that was in the process of, of expanding. They were adding on to it, and we'd actually passed another one earlier on Route 27, just a lot closer to the church. So when we think of idols, this is the sort of thing that we generally have in mind, right? Something of, of stone, wood, steel, some physical kind of structure that, that people are, are bowing down to, right? And, and that certainly can be and is an idol. But when John talks about idols, and this is really important for us to know, he's talking about more than, than just that. An idol doesn't have to be something physical at all. In fact, usually it's not. So here we go. Here's a good working definition of an idol for you. An idol is whatever my life revolves around. Put that in kind of common terms today. An idol is anything my life, whatever my life revolves around. Whatever you devote the majority of your resources to, your time, your energy, your affections, your desires, your emotions, your money. It could be your job, could be sex, could be security, could be sports, 
could be the approval of others, could be your country, could be your family. Idols are tricky, too. They're, they're really sneaky because usually it's not something blatantly bad. Usually, in fact, an idol is something good. As Tim Keller says, idolatry is fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Idolatry is fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. It's not that the thing in itself is bad, but it's been elevated to a place of supreme importance in our lives. So let's take money, for example, right? Money, a a wonderful gift from God. God blesses us materially. It's a good thing. But when it becomes the main thing, when it becomes the thing that your life revolves around, that occupies all of your thoughts, all of your attention, and you know, you're spending every spare moment trying to, to micromanage the, the market, and, and your self-esteem rises and falls based on you know, the performance of the stock market on any given day, and how big your bank account is or how little it is, You've got an idol on your hands. It's become an object of supreme devotion. Sex. Sex is a gift from God. It's a good thing, a blessing. But when it becomes the main thing, when it becomes an object of supreme devotion that you devote yourself to, that everything revolves around and causes you to pursue intimacy outside the limits of marriage, whether it's actual infidelity or pornography, that's an idol. You got an idol on your hands. Uh, security is a gift from God. God provides us with a job, food in the fridge, right? Retirement accounts, etc. But when that good thing becomes the main thing, when we feel anxious and unsettled every time the market shifts, when our identity fluctuates, we have an idol on our hands. Idols are, are super tricky. Because they're not always the obvious thing. They're not something you can drive down Route 27 and point to a giant 20-foot statue of Buddha and says, ah, there's an idol. That's an idol. A lot of times they're, they're more hidden and they're hidden in, in plain sight. And because of that, they need to be discovered and unmasked for the evil that they are. So, how do you know when you've got an idol on your hands? You might be a redneck if, <laughs> we could say. Here are a few diagnostic questions to ask. What does my life revolve around? How do I spend most of my free time? What is my number one priority? What stirs my heart more than anything? What can I not live without? What gives me the most anxiety when it's threatened? What is the thing that, if it were gone, I wouldn't be okay anymore? What makes me angry when someone tells me I'm giving too much time and attention to that thing? If you're feeling a bit of a pinprick right now, or some toes being curb stomped, uh, you're not alone. And I'm not just talking about myself. The entire Old Testament is a story about idolatry. If the Old Testament were a movie, I would have to classify it as a dark comedy, probably directed by the Coen brothers, because 
It's the same sick cycle that repeats itself again and again. It's like a broken record. God's chosen people, Israel, they stray away from worshiping the one true God and instead bow down to the foreign gods of the nations around them. Right? Peer pressure is this super powerful thing, and they give into it again and again. But rather than leave the tabernacle and join the first church of Baal across the street, they do something a little bit more tricky. They say, no, we're still going to maintain our membership here at, at, at this church, at First Church of Yahweh, but we're going to add this church of Baal to our weekly worship schedule. So we're not going to jettison it completely. We're going to still offer sacrifices. We're going to go through the motions. We're going to still worship God. We're going to have another one, another little God on the side. They think they can have that dual membership. That way they can have their cake and eat it too, or so they think. But each and every time, what happens? Well, God judges them. They repent. God forgives them. He restores the relationship. And five verses later, (laughs) they're at it again. The Old Testament prophets compared Israel's idolatry to committing spiritual adultery against the Lord. When they chased after these other gods, the Israelites, this is the picture that the Bible paints again and again, not just through one prophet, but through many different prophets, is that Israel is like a spouse that cheats on her husband by going after these foreign gods, committing spiritual adultery Ezekiel puts it like this when he called the Israelites out on their sin. And and fair warning, like I said, buckle up here. He's talking to Israel directly. He says, Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered and your whorings with your lovers and with all your abominable idols, I will judge you and bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. See, idolatry was no laughing matter. It was serious and had serious consequences. Ezekiel knew this, Jesus knew this, and John knew this. It's why he ends his letter with this admonition. Little children, Keep yourselves from idols. Why is an idol so dangerous? Because it vies for our allegiance with God. An idol is dangerous because it vies for our allegiance with God. And the effects are devastating. When someone or something other than the true God, the source of all love and goodness takes up residence on the throne of our hearts, we can no longer love God and our neighbors the way that we should. Instead, our love becomes divided and and misdirected. Hence the warning, little children, keep yourselves from idols. And that naturally leads to another question. What is the origin story of these idols? Like, we ask the question, where did they come from? Where did these idols come from? And now the default response we often have to this is to say, well, they came from out there, right? It came from the world. There's, there's an idol of, of money or workaholism or whatever it is that's out there, and my own heart 
is drawn towards it, and my own heart can go after it. But the, the problem is out there. That's what causes the turmoil. But listen to James 4.1. He says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Where's the problem? It's within you. It's in our hearts. Turns out then the problem isn't just out there in the big bad world. It's in here. Our hearts are bent and broken. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Prone to chase after the idols that we know won't satisfy us. That promise the good life. That tell us the grass is always greener over there. That God is holding out on us, which... By the way, it was what Adam and Eve were tempted with, this promise that God was holding out on them, the original sin. You know, John Calvin once said, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. The human heart is a perpetual idol factory. And it's true. In our hearts, there's like this giant 3M plant that keeps churning out idols by the dozen. John says, guard your heart from idols. I I found this word guard really interesting because you can guard something in a couple of different ways, right? You can guard in the sense of like the Secret Service guards the president, right, from a potential attack of assassins, right? So they're they're around him and they're, they're keeping an eye out for onslaughts from the outside. But there's also a sense in which a guard can be set over a prisoner. You're trying to keep the prisoner from escaping. We need to do both of these. We need to guard against both of these in both these ways with our hearts. One, against the attack from the outside. Two, against our own hearts, which are prone to wander and prone to go after the things that won't satisfy us. The big problem with idols, though, is that they never give what they promise. They demand everything, blood, sweat, and tears, but they give nothing in return. They always come up short and let us down. There's a reason Scripture calls idols false gods, right? You've heard this term. They're false in the sense that they're not even real because they can't fill the role that only the true God can, and they leave us bankrupt. Uh, Tim Keller, in his phenomenal book, The Reason for God, if you haven't read it, you should read it, he explains what happens in a very practical way when our lives revolve around anything other than God, even the good things. This is a long quote, but I want you to hear it because it's so relevant. Listen to this. He says, if you center your life and identity on your spouse or partner, you will be emotionally dependent, jealous, and controlling. The other person's problems will be overwhelming to you. If you center your life and identity on your family and children, you will try to live your life through your children until they resent you or have no self of their own. At worst, you may abuse them when they displease you. If you center your life and identity on your work and career, you will be a driven workaholic and a boring, shallow person. At worst, you will lose family and friends, and if your career goes poorly, develop deep depression. 
If you center your life and identity on money and possessions, you'll be eaten up by worry or jealousy about money. You'll be willing to do unethical things to maintain your lifestyle, which will eventually blow up your life. If you center your life and identity on pleasure, gratification, and comfort, you will find yourself getting addicted to something. You will become chained to the escape strategies by which you avoid the hardness of life. If you center your life and identity on relationships and approval, you will constantly be overly hurt by criticism and thus losing friends. You will fear... You will fear confronting others and therefore will be a useless friend. If you center your life and identity on a noble cause, you will divide the world into good and bad and demonize your opponents. Ironically, you'll be controlled by your enemies because without them you have no purpose. If you center your life and identity on religion and morality, you will, if you are living up to your moral standards, be proud, self-righteous, and cruel. If you don't live up to your moral standards, your guilt will be utterly devastating. End quote. So what hope do we have? What hope is there to guard ourselves against idols when our own hearts are the very idol factory? Here's the truth, friends, and this is good news. It it may not seem like it at first, but stick with me here. You can't. You can't. We can't. We can't give ourselves a spiritual heart transplant. We can't recalibrate our own affections so that we worship God alone exclusively. We can't rescue ourselves from sin. Only God, a true God, not a false God, can do that. And He did. 2 Timothy 4.18 puts it like this. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. 2,000 years ago at Golgotha, God enacted a divine rescue by sending His Son Jesus to die on a cross for your sins and mine so that anyone who believes will not perish but have everlasting life. Drowning in a sea of idols, the cross is the one thing that can keep us afloat. Jesus protects us from the storm of sin raging in our own hearts and in the world around us which is under the jurisdiction of the evil one. He shields us through his shed blood at the cross, which means that Satan, the enemy, can't touch us. Only God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can unmask the idols lurking in the corners of our hearts. And tearing off the masks of idols can be an incredibly painful process. But when he does, we can finally rejoice that darkness has been turned to light, that lies have been exchanged for truth, that emptiness has been exchanged for fullness, and that death has been exchanged for life. That we can confess our spiritual blindness to him because even when we don't know all of the details of what we are confessing, how could we? We can know that he forgives us. 
just like he did the Israelites, 70 times 7 and beyond, which is just another way of saying there's no end to God's forgiveness. And what's more is that he gives us his Holy Spirit. He doesn't leave us alone to to fight these battles, to fight these temptations by ourselves. He gives us the Holy Spirit to daily renew us more and more in the image of God through His Word, growing our love for Him, transforming our affections, and enabling us to fight against these idols that seek to ensnare us. We're no longer captives to sin. Only God can unmask and topple the idols in our hearts, replacing them with an object of supreme devotion, one who loves unconditionally, who always keeps His promises, and who won't let us down. Jesus Christ is our only hope, superior to false gods in every possible way. So as we wrap up our series on 1 John this morning, if you only remember one verse, I encourage you to to take this verse, to repeat it, to memorize it, to to drill this deep into your heart, into your mind, and to let it transform every aspect of your existence. This is it, 1 John 4.10. Would you say this verse out loud with me together as we close this morning? This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. My hope and prayer is that you carry that truth around with you wherever you go and that God would press it deeper and deeper into every corner of your heart so that you will not only know it, but believe it and live it. God loves you. He forgives you. He cares for you. You are precious in His sight. May that truth be sufficient for each and every one of us. Hey friends, Pastor Luke here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I trust that you've been blessed by our message from God's Word today. Hey, we'd love to connect with you more. If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at pastorchellog at gmail.com. That's pastorkjellog.com. O-L-H-A-U-G at gmail.com As we wrap up our time together today, please receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen. Amen.